Hello there, and welcome to episode 13. What was that? Uh, episode 13 of Say Hello to My Little Friend, also known as the Berenacast. If you're new to this podcast, Say Hello to My Little Friend is a podcast devoted to philosophy, theology, and maybe every now and then a bit of politics. I haven't really said anything about politics in the first 12 episodes, and there won't be anything especially political in this episode either, but it's possible, even if it never actually happens. From arguments about the existence of God, to raging theological controversies between believers, to the relationship between religion and law, or religion and science for that matter, to questions of the nature of the human mind, the end of the world as we know it, moral divides over issues like abortion, and incidentally the, the last three subjects I mentioned are lined up for episodes in the near future, and many other subjects and issues besides, you can hear about it here at the Beretta Cast. This is the podcast for the Beretta website, which you can find at beretta-online.com. And this is Glenn Peebles speaking. I welcome listener feedback. For a while now, I've been telling listeners that if they have any thoughts on what they've heard, please do drop me a line at podcast at beretta-online.com, and I'll address their letter on the show. In fact, if you send me an audio clip with a question audio clip with a question. I'm trying to improve my pronunciation on the podcast. Uh, I may even play it on the show, so it's like you can be my co-host. And I'll discuss it there. Uh, today's episode is a first, actually, because I will be discussing an email that I've received from a listener. It's the first of many more, I hope. So if you are new, welcome. Please keep listening and invite others to do so as well. I invite you to subscribe to this podcast using your favorite podcatcher software. I prefer iTunes uh, or Banshee if you're using Linux. If you have an iTunes account, you're more than welcome as well to leave a comment at the pod on this podcast at the iTunes store. And on that note, I do want to thank Free iPod Guy for his recent and encouraging comments at the iTunes store. So have a look at his site too if you're interested, freeipodguy.com. And if you live in the States, which... I don't, unfortunately. You could end up with a free iPod. So where were we in the Beretta cast? In episode 11, two episodes ago, I presented an introduction to presuppositional apologetics, as presented by Cornelius Van Til, Greg Bunsen, and others. In episode 12, I began looking at the work of Alvin Plantinga, suggesting that in his work we find a transcendental argument not entirely unlike that found in presuppositional apologetics. I looked there at his argument for theism that I referred to as the argument from warrant. Now in this episode, episode 13, I'll be looking at a second argument from Plantinga, an argument known as the evolutionary argument against naturalism. So let's get started. I do have to wonder what Alvin Plantinga would think if he knew that he were being introduced with music like this. Maybe I should tell him about it see what he thinks. Anyway, um, moving on now to the evolutionary argument against naturalism from Alvin Plantinga. Uh, as with the, my previous episode on Plantinga's work, 
I won't stop always to differentiate from when I'm quoting sources that Plantinga refers and just sources that I found that are relevant, but that doesn't matter. Okay. It's generally thought that evolutionary biology and a naturalistic metaphysic, that is the view that the material universe is all there is, go nicely together. Alvin Plantinga has contested this notion, arguing that evolutionary biology actually gives us a reason to doubt naturalism. More specifically, the conjunction of naturalism and evolution, so if you believe in both naturalism and evolution, I'll refer to that position as NE throughout the episode. NE means naturalism and evolution. So if that's true, if NE is true, he says, then we actually have an undercutter for any belief we might hold, including our belief in NE, which means that NE itself would be self-defeating. So that's a brief snapshot of what the argument seeks to show. And now for the specifics. So let's say a bit about belief-forming structures. That is, everything that you have and possess, have and possess, that's redundant, everything that you have that generates the beliefs that you have. According to Christianity, Christian theism, we human beings have been created by God in His image, which is often taken to mean that we have the capacity to know. Now, even if that's not what the image of God is, that doesn't matter. Christianity has always taught that God has created us with the capacity to gain knowledge. As Plantinga notes, an evolutionary account of how we came to be what we are is certainly compatible with this theistic view of our cognitive abilities. It may be that there is a God who ultimately caused us to be what we are and that he used an evolutionary process to do so. And maybe he orchestrated the process in such a way as to ensure that our cognitive faculties are likely to produce true beliefs. So he gave us a reliable belief-forming structure. But suppose that naturalism and evolution are true. So suppose NE. There is no God to engage in such orchestration. This leads directly, says Plantinga, to the question of whether or not it is likely that our cognitive faculties would have on their own just developed in a way that is conducive to a tendency to form true beliefs. Okay, because we tend to think that our belief-forming structure should give us true beliefs or it doesn't work very well. So let's look at the phenomenon that Plantinga calls Darwin's doubt. The seeds of this argument were suggested by Charles Darwin. With me, he said, the horrid doubt always arises whether the convictions of man's mind, which has been developed from the minds of the lower animals, are of any value or at all trustworthy. Would any one trust in the convictions of a monkey's mind if there were any convictions in such a mind? End quote. Patricia Churchland gives a more scientific-sounding rationale for the problem, explaining that the reason any evolutionary change will be kept is that it helps us to move or behave in such a way as to benefit our chances of survival. Because that's what natural selection does. She says, Boiled down to essentials, a nervous system enables the organism to succeed in the four Fs. Feeding, fleeing, fighting, and reproducing. <gasps> the principal chore of nervous systems is to get the body parts where they should be in order that the organism may survive. 
Improvements in sensory motor control confer an evolutionary advantage. A fancier style of representing is advantageous so long as it is geared to the organism's way of life and enhances the organism's chances of survival. Truth, whatever that is, definitely takes the hindmost. End quote. So, natural selection, to put it very bluntly, just doesn't care what we believe. It cares how we act. It selects in favor of a behavior pattern that is more likely to result in survival and reproduction. It doesn't select in favor of true belief, except insofar as the belief is necessary or helpful in bringing about behavior that will result in survival and reproduction. This may sound a little radical and skeptical to some at this point, if, if they see where it's going. They might be tempted to think that it's just something bandied about in the fringes of the scientific and philosophical community. That's not really the case. I mean, Churchill herself is, is a pretty hard hitter, as was Darwin, for obvious reasons. Uh, but in, in philosophical circles, you've got Friedrich Nietzsche, who shared this view of beliefs, or at any rate laid significant groundwork for it. His claim was essentially that we should not use the falsehood of any belief as a reason for not believing it. That might seem a little weird at first, but he says, after all, we have not come to hold beliefs based on their truth, but on their evolutionary usefulness. Here's what he says, and I quote, The falseness of an opinion is not for us any objection to it. It is here, perhaps, that our new language sounds most strangely. The question is how far an opinion is life-furthering, life-preserving, species-preserving, perhaps species-rearing, and we are fundamentally inclined to maintain that the falsest opinions, to which the synthetic judgments a priori belong, are the most indispensable to us, that without a recognition of logical fictions, without a comparison of reality with the purely imagined world of the absolute and immutable, without a constant counterfeiting of the world by means of numbers, man could not live that the re renunciation of false opinions would be a renunciation of life, a negation of life. To recognize untruth as a condition of life, that is certainly to impugn the traditional ideas of value in a dangerous manner. And a philosophy which ventures to do so has thereby placed alone placed itself beyond good and evil. Now, end quote, by the way, while Nietzsche's comments were made in regard to moral beliefs, it should be clear enough that the claim, if true, would apply to all kinds of beliefs and not just moral ones. The claim Plantinga makes, then, is presented as a formula. It's P given, no, sorry, P of R given NE, or P given R over NE, is low. What that means is, R here is the claim that our belief-forming structures are reliable. N and E are naturalism and evolution. So what this means is, P, by the way, represents probability. So what this means is, the probability of R, that is the reliability of our belief-forming structures, so the probability of R given N and E is low. Given that this apparently is the worry underlying Darwin's concern, he calls it Darwin's doubt, as I said. So let's probe that claim. Is P 
of r given ne low. Now, while nobody disputes with Darwin and Churchland, as well as Nietzsche and probably others if I looked further, that natural selection doesn't care about our beliefs but only about our behavior, it might be argued that true beliefs really are just more likely to bring about behavior that is beneficial you know, in, in terms of evolutionary survival. And thus the unorchestrated evolutionary process is likely to preserve traits that result in a reliable belief-forming structure, because true beliefs are good for us. As Plantinga notes, the question of the value of P, given, uh, P of R over NE, really turns on the relationship between belief and behavior. Given NE, naturalism and evolution, see what's the point of abbreviations if I'm going to explain them every time, given NE, a high reliability of our belief-forming structures is probable only if it is unlikely for some reason that creatures, namely humans in their evolutionary development, could behave in survival-conducive ways and yet hold to beliefs that are mostly false. Plantinga surveys a variety of views of the relationship between beliefs and actions, and in each case he asks whether or not they are such that they would be unlikely to produce mostly false beliefs in the context of EN. To avoid what Plantinga calls interspecific chauvinism, that is chauvinism between species, and irrelevant distractions, let us consider these possibilities not for ourselves, but for a hypothetical population of creatures a lot like ourselves on, on a planet very similar to Earth. They have come into being via a process very much like Darwinian evolution, and they live in a world where there is no God. What is the probability of P over NE, not for us, but for them? The most promising scenario for these creatures is that their beliefs are causal for behavior, unlike, say, a strong epiphenomenalist outlook. Look that up if that interests you, but I, I don't want to spend too much time on that here. And their beliefs are such that they also give rise to adaptive behavior. Assuming this, what might the probability of R be like for these creatures? So, given that their beliefs really do cause actions, and those actions do give rise to adaptive behavior, what's the probability that their belief-forming structures are reliable when it comes to forming true beliefs? Well, we might naturally think, well, fairly high, but this actually may be a little hasty. On reflection, there is actually a wide variety, perhaps an, a potentially infinitely wide variety, of beliefs that might give rise to adaptive behavior in any given scenario, and most of those beliefs are going to be false. You don't think so? Well, Plantinga suggests just such a scenario, and once he has suggested it, I think it becomes immediately apparent how easy it is to concoct many more scenarios. Take a member of the species, Paul, who is confronted by a hungry tiger. Now, running away really fast is perhaps the behavioral response that is most conducive to survival. But is it obvious that this behavior will only be accounted for or caused by true beliefs, or that other beliefs are not at least as likely to result in this adaptive behavior? No, that's not obvious at all. In fact, it's not even true. Here's what Plantinga says about it. He says, 
Perhaps Paul very much likes the idea of being eaten, but when he sees a tiger, he always runs off looking for a better prospect because he thinks that it is unlikely that the tiger he sees will eat him. This will get his body parts in the right place so far as survival is concerned, without involving much by way of true belief. Or perhaps he thinks the tiger is a large, friendly, cuddly pussy cat, and wants to pet it. But he also believes that the best way to pet it is to run away from it. Or perhaps he thinks the tiger is a regular, re regularly recurring illusion, and hoping to keep his weight down, has formed the resolution to run a mile at top speed whenever presented with such an illusion. Or perhaps he thinks he is about to take part in a sixteen hundred meter race. He wants to win, and believes the appearance of the tiger is the starting signal. Or perhaps. Clearly, there are any number of belief-cum-desire systems that equally fit a given bit of behavior. End quote. See what I mean? Now you could probably come up with half a dozen more scenarios on your own right now, but don't keep listening. So there are a number of beliefs that might give rise to adaptive behavior, and most of them, nearly all of them, are false. Without having any additional knowledge of these creatures, we would have to conclude that P of R given NE, given this view of the relationship between beliefs and actions, namely that beliefs cause actions, is low. For clarity, let me be explicit. There is no claim on Plantinga's part that true beliefs would not be adaptive. His claim is that there are more false beliefs that would also be adaptive than there are true beliefs. Now, an objection suggests itself here. Sure, we can concoct scenarios where there will be many more false beliefs that are conducive to survival and adaptation than there are true beliefs. Let's grant that. But could it be that our beliefs could be mostly false, but still just as conducive to survival and adaptation as true beliefs? The force of the argument is not irresistible. It might be. That the estimates of any probabilities involved when estimating p, of r given n e for this hypothetical population were imprecise or just very poorly grounded. You might think that this is an exercise in wild speculation. Okay, so Plantinga is prepared to back down a little and tone down the argument here. He says, "Okay, let's not boldly declare with certainty that." The probability of R given N E for these beings must be low. Let's say that it's either low or inscrutable, unsearchable. It's not really very comforting, though, is it, to say that it's just unknowable and inscrutable whether or not uh, the reliability, yeah, our belief-forming structures are reliable. We want a bit more confidence than that, surely. Moreover,、uh, that would still mean that our Our confidence in our belief in naturalism and evolution is also either low or unscrutable.、So、you still end up with something that appears to be self-defeating. If Darwin's doubt is a sensible attitude to take towards these beings, then it is a sensible attitude to take towards ourselves. We are relevantly like them, and as far as our biological development is concerned, and our own belief-forming structures have the same kind of origin as theirs, according to the one who affirms N.E. But the objection could be pressed further. The one who doesn't agree with Plantinga might press the objection and say, "Well, even in situations like Plantinga's tiger example, is it not the case that 
even though Paul holds false beliefs about tigers, and perhaps many other things, like what his actions will do to the tiger, there are, surely, many more basic and important beliefs which must be true, in order for any of his proposed scenarios to be viable. For example, Paul would still need to believe that when he puts one foot in front of the other, it will react with the ground in much the same way that his other foot does, instead of, say, sticking to the ground or sinking into it or exploding. He would need to believe that when he takes a step, he will get further away from the tiger rather than closer. He would need to believe, too, I think, that when he approaches a tree, it will stop him if he collides with it. So when he runs, he avoids the trees. Or does he need to believe that? Does he actually need to believe that it will stop him? Perhaps he thinks that trees are witches, and if he runs into them, he will go through them just fine. But the tree will place a terrible curse on him, so he is careful not to run into the tree. So there, there are some possibly false beliefs that, well, definitely false beliefs that possibly lead to adaptive behavior as well. Still, let us concede that there are some very basic principles of physics, physics, elementary expectations of the physical world that need to be correctly believed in order to aid survival. So there you go. We do need some true beliefs after all. But if Plantinga were to concede this, how much has he conceded? Well, perhaps not very much. Perhaps this would only mean that an adaptive belief-forming structure must have a wishy-washy minimal tendency to produce some basic true beliefs, but it need not do anything great beyond that. Beyond this level, counterintuitive though it may seem to us, there are still many beliefs, certainly many more false beliefs than true beliefs, that could, would still produce adaptive behavior. Certainly more false beliefs than true beliefs, I think. Beliefs about very elementary physical principles might be the kind of thing that we could rely on to at least approximate some truths, but beliefs about metaphysics, scientific projection and interpretation of scientific evidence, and most questions in academic philosophy is just a few examples, and pretty much any belief beyond something fairly simple that could be both false and adaptive might be in the inscrutable territory, and that's a lot of beliefs including metaphysical beliefs, certainly including belief in evolution or intelligent design or naturalism or theism. So naturalism and evolution would still be self-defeating because it would leave us in a position where we say there is no reason at all to think that the kind of belief-forming structures that form beliefs like naturalism and evolution are reliable. Now I want to notice, just step back for a bit and take note of what Plantinga has done in general. On reflection, what Plantinga has in effect done is to offer a form of transcendental argument. The evolutionist, who is a naturalist, presupposes that her belief-forming faculties are functioning properly when they function in such a way as to produce true beliefs. However, the ideological, perhaps I should say the worldview context, in which those beliefs are formed offer little confidence that, that that is really in fact what these faculties do. I'm borrowing from presuppositional language now just to 
try to demonstrate the connection. She is thus presupposing something that her worldview cannot account for, something that is actually a precondition for even asking about the truth of her worldview. The view that she actually assents to, N.E., serves as an undercutter for all of her beliefs, including the one she is assenting to. And so if any belief can be called irrational, surely N.E., the combination of naturalism and evolution, must be irrational. That Plantinga has offered an argument similar to Van Til's transcendental argument is further suggested by the fact that uh, James Van Cleve gives a provocative title for the chapter he made in response to Plantinga, a title that could easily have been written by Kelly James Clark in response to Van Til. The title was, Can Atheists Know Anything? In response to the position of Van Til, a theologian-cum-philosopher, Kelly James Clark, argues that Van Til's views led to the claim that atheists can't know anything, since the basis of knowledge is God. I'll turn to that argument soon and explain why it's a bad rebuttal to Van Til. Van Cleve likewise says that Plantinga's argument leads to the claim that atheists cannot know anything. Both men were equally mistaken in their attempted rebuttal. Van Cleve said, Recall that Plantinga con contends simply that R has either low or inscrutable probability, given what the naturalist believes. Are those circumstances enough to keep the naturalist from knowing anything? If not, we should not maintain, as Plantinga does, both elements of the conjunctive proposition. Inscrutable prob probability of R in relation to something you believe gives you a defeat for R, and a defeat for R gives you a defeat for everything. Now, let me unpack that. He basically replies to Plantinga by saying, Oh, come on now, is it really the case that an atheist can't know anything? Of course not, so you should give up your argument. Because he thinks, wrongly, that Plantinga's argument leads to the claim that atheists can't know anything. But that's mistaken. Plantinga is not a believer in naturalism. And he thinks that because naturalism is not true, we can know many things. You see, the conclusion that Plantinga draws is that either naturalism and evolution as a conjunction is false, or we can have little confidence that our belief-forming structures are, in the main, likely to produce true beliefs. Okay? He says that if we believe NE, then we have a defeater for NE. But the crucial thing to notice is that having a defeater for a belief, B, is not the same as not knowing that B. We may indeed know something, even though we have a defeater for the belief that we know it. Van Cleve's complaint is analogous to saying that since, given the position that I advance on morality, namely that the view that naturalists have a defeater for moral claims, it's like arguing, well, it follows then that I am denying that they can know moral claims. But that's obviously wrong. They can know such things, even though they have this nagging defeater telling them that they shouldn't be able to know such things. The way to defeat the defeater, and this is really Plantinga's point, is to give up naturalism. This appears to be an important point, just because so many people make this mistake. In fact, and I can say this now that I've graduated, one of the examiners of my PhD thesis, and I won't name him, it's not important, made this mistake. I argued that moral beliefs can only be true because God exists. 
and his reply was that well if this was so then i am denying that unbelievers can have any justified true moral beliefs and so they can't have moral knowledge no not so it doesn't follow in the least of course they can have moral knowledge because in fact their moral faculties work as they were intended to by god and they really do detect moral facts that exist because of god my point was that if they deny theism then they have a reason to deny that they are detecting moral facts since they have a reason for thinking that there are no such facts the same holds for plantinga by saying that naturalism undermines the reliability of our belief-forming structures he's not saying that naturalists can't form true beliefs he's saying that their naturalism gives them a reason for denying that they can trust the reliability of their belief-forming structures and if they aren't happy with that conclusion they should give up naturalism plenty of hasty theologians have made the same mistake in criticizing van til commenting favorably on the method of john frame kelly james clark says unlike some presuppositionalists frame believes that argument can play a positive role in coming to faith he adds in a footnote apparently as a way of describing the position that these some presuppositionalists find themselves in quote, if unbelievers can't know anything how can arguments be used to persuade them of the truth of the christian faith End quote. oh well of course it's obvious now he makes the accusation again more pointedly at van til i'll quote him at length van til's epistemological claims seem clearly to imply that non-christians cannot know anything this has caused some embarrassment for his followers because it looks like it is obviously false surely even the most benighted unbelievers know that they are that they aren't the only people who exist in the world what their own names are what they ate for breakfast the reason unbelievers can't know anything according to presuppositionalists note his wording there is that the presupp presuppositions upon which their knowledge is based are all wrong they believe on the basis of autonomous human reasoning and not on the basis of the god who is reason the rotting foundation affects the beliefs that are based on it. Even he directly attributes that belief to presuppositionalists. Look at the way he words it. The reason unbelievers can't know anything, according to presuppositionalists, I'm sorry, in spite of denial on the part of those he is criticizing, Clark maintains that he understands the outcome of their view better than they do. He says, van til and his followers often claim that van til never claims this the problem is that the conclusion that unbelievers can't know anything follows fairly simply from the analysis from their analysis of knowledge and the disparaging remarks they make about the unbelievers lack of justification due to faulty reasoning end quote. he adds that the existence of brilliant non-religious thinkers like einstein watson and crick is such that it serves as quote, a reduction of the presuppositionalist claim that unbelievers cannot know anything to absurdity look at that the, the, the presuppositionalists claim that unbelievers cannot know anything that's what he's saying now that's embarrassingly bad um, he teaches at Calvin College as did Plantinga once but I'm sorry to say that standards have slipped Clark has gratuitously attract, attacked a straw man Clark based on his own faulty reasoning thinks that from presuppositionalist premises 
one should infer that unbelievers know nothing and cannot do so. And then he's taken that shoddy conclusion and made the outrageous claim that that's what presuppositionalists claim. It's not true. They never claim that. Secondly, it is shoddy reasoning, and it's an invalid inference. The claim that unbelievers cannot know anything does not follow from presuppositional premises any more than it follows from a Catholic natural law perspective that atheists cannot know right from wrong. In other words, this is the argument as he thinks it goes. He's drawing the conclusion three. Okay, one, God is in fact what makes knowledge possible. Two, unbelievers deny that God exists. So far, so good, according to a presuppositionalist. Here's Clark's conclusion. Three, therefore unbelievers have no knowledge. But that's, that's a basically invalid argument. An analogous argument might be, four, air makes breathing possible. Five, John doesn't believe in air. Six, therefore John cannot breathe. Now that's ridiculous. The predominant proponents of presuppositionalism understand the invalidity of such inferences, and that, the, that is why, as Clark occasionally admits, they deny this claim although sometimes he says that they claim it's true. It is not that Van Til's view of knowledge is such that it leaves no unbelie unbelieving person knowing anything. Rather, as uh, a follower of Van Til, the late uh, Rushduni observed, his philosophy leaves nothing to the consistent natural man. Natural man here means unbelieving man. Uh, this is what he says, Rushduni. Thus, the consistent Christian position must be this, no God, no knowledge. Since the universe is a created universe, no true knowledge of it is possible except in terms of thinking God's thoughts after him. Thus, the natural man, being inconsistent with himself, does, to a measure, using the latter, but denying its existence. In his practical reasoning and research, he is a semi-Christian. In his theoretical reasoning, he is insistently the autonomous man. Okay, so he reiterates elsewhere, Rashiduni does, that unbelievers in fact do know things because God does exist, and the unbeliever instinctively does interpret reality as though this were so, even though he denies it. He says again, This radical incapacity of the consistent natural man is in every realm of knowledge and every aspect of reality. His failure is not limited to the field of religion, but is equally applicable to the natural sciences. If all facts are God-given facts, then all facts have a common source of interpretation, and to reject it in one area is to reject it in all. Man is rescued from this extremity only by his failure to be consistent to himself. He thinks theistically when he can safely do so, while rejecting the ground of his knowledge. See that? Rashduni's point is that the unbeliever cognitively acts as though God does exist. And unless he did, he would not know anything. But in fact, he doesn't consistently act as though God doesn't exist. And so he does know many things, even though he affirms a proposition which, if true, would undermine this fact. Van Til, as well, was aware of the misunderstanding that Clark made explicit, and he shows that Rushdoony's later comments are faithful to Van Til's own philosophy. He says, 
the first objection that suggests itself may be expressed in the rhetorical question do you really mean to assert that non-christians do not discover truth by the means they employ the reply is that we mean nothing so absurd as that the implication of the method here advocated is simply that non-christians are never able and therefore never do employ their own methods consistently so kelly james clark was wrong as is anyone who thinks that this transcendental argument from van til or from plantinga for that matter leads to the conclusion that unbelievers cannot or do not know anything it's an invalid inference and it's not made by presuppositional apologists apologists presuppositionalists as should now be clear don't say that theism is what makes all knowledge possible it's not belief in god that makes all knowledge possible it's god who makes all knowledge possible one factor that is especially appealing about plantinga's transcendental argument as opposed to van til's i think is that plantinga actually realized what he had given an argument for his evolutionary argument against naturalism is explicitly presented as an argument against naturalism and as an argument for a general type of theism that is any kind in which there is a god who created us with the intention that we should know stuff he does not wrongly imagine that only orthodox trinitarian christianity has been proven by this argument it might be proven by other arguments but not this one van til on the other hand gave an argument against naturalism called it an argument for orthodox trinitarian christianity and was unfortunately followed by other presuppositionalists like Barnson or the hosts of the narrow mind radio show that was a mistake that's why i think plantinga's argument is substantially better i happen to find it more interesting as well but that's neither here nor there for further reading on the important similarity between the argument of van til and those of alvin plantinga have a look at the article by james anderson called if knowledge then god the epistemological theistic arguments of alvin plantinga and cornelius van til which appeared in calvin theological journal i'll include the bibliographical details at the blog where i will also post these notes as well for anyone interested in looking at uh further sorry at plantinga's evolutionary argument against naturalism you can find it spelled out in his book warrant and proper function or it's in an article length piece on the internet under the title naturalism defeated or if like me you want to see philosophers critical of the argument responding to it followed by a brilliant in my opinion rejoinder from plantinga to them look up the book edited by james k bailby uh, called naturalism defeated essays on plantinga's evolutionary argument against naturalism uh, published by cornell university press so there we have it that's uh, alvin plantinga's contribution or what i think should be seen as his contribution to uh, transcendental arguments and therefore to presuppositional apologetics so having wrapped that up and by the way if anything's not clear or you'd like me to discuss something further just let me know but for now i'm going to move on to one of these that's right it's this week in history uh the week 13th to 19th of july whoa i just noticed something this is episode 13 and the week I'm covering begins on the 13th. Actually, it's a pretty uneventful week compared to many. July 13th, 1917. 
Three children in Fatima, Portugal, report seeing visions of the Virgin Mary. No, no, stop that. It wasn't a joke. They were serious. <laughs> right, I give up. July 15th, 1205. Pope Innocent III, hardly innocent, asserted that Jews are doomed to perpetual servitude and subjugation due to their role in the crucifixion of Christ. July 16th, 1945, in what was dubbed the Trinity Test, the world's first nuclear weapon test was conducted by the United States about 35 miles southwest of Socorro, I think that's pronounced correctly, in New Mexico. The bomb used in this test, aka Fat Boy, was of the same design as the one that would be dropped just weeks later on the city of Nagasaki on the 9th of August, causing the deaths of around 80,000 Japanese people, most of whom were civilians. July 18th, AD 64, the Great Fire of Rome begins, and the suspected culprit is none other than the Emperor... <laughs> it's late. None other than the Emperor Nero himself. Wishing to shift attention from himself, Nero officially places the blame on the city's Christian population, and then begins a vicious campaign of persecution against them. July 18th, 1925, Adolf Hitler publishes his now notorious manifesto, Mein Kampf. Some people say Adolf. Some people say Adolf. I'm pretty sure it was Adolf, if you're a German speaker. But who cares? July 19th, 1940, in World War II, Adolf Hitler makes a peace offer to Britain, which Winston Churchill immediately rejects. I told you it was uneventful, in the sense that there weren't many things that happened, even if they were important things. And now for something quite new and exciting. We got mail. It's the letters section. Yes, I got an email about an episode, and may many more flow in. This week's letter is from Mike. He writes, Hi, Glenn. Incidentally, I didn't use the surname, because I'm not sure if that's the kosher thing to do, but I don't know. Maybe I will in future. But I'd rather play it safe first time around. Mike says, Hi, Glenn. I really enjoy your podcast. Thank you very much, Mike. Especially episode 12 regarding Plantinga. I've been meaning to read Warranted Christian Belief, but I'm stuck on The Resurrection of the Son of God by right. Actually, I haven't read either of those things, but I'm told that both of them are excellent. I should sometime. Anyway, he says, I had a common, re I had a common rebuttal to the moral argument that I am not sure that you dealt with 100%. While I believe the moral argument, I find one way out of it that has yet to be dealt with to my satisfaction. It comes in the form of an evolutionary argument for perceived moral objectives. I will try to, and summarize the rebuttal as best I can. Morals are an evolutionary advantage in that they lead to a more prosperous and healthy society. They have been evolved over time as a form of social contract. I won't kill you, so don't kill me. Well, that's nice. And the ability of humans to empathize with other humans, accomplished by mirror neurons. The objectivity of morals is a mere illusion and that they only seem objective because of this evolution. They were basically hardwired by natural selection into our psyche. All societies that were immoral were selected against, which leads to our quote-unquote moral society. 
The bottom line is that morals are subjective in that they arise from naturalistic mechanisms, but, but because of this mechanism they feel objective. Again, keep up the good work, Mike. Thank you, Mike. You are the first. You have stolen this podcast's letter virginity. Here's what I would say about the proposed rebuttal. I think there are two things to say about this possible reply to the moral argument. Firstly, even if it's entirely correct, it's not a rebuttal. It shouldn't even be called a rebuttal, even if every claim in it is true. It's really a concession. It concedes the moral argument. Effectively, it says, okay, fair enough. If naturalism and evolution are the only factors at work here, then you're right. You're right, there are no objective moral truths. What we have instead are these practices that are, in evolutionary terms, good for us. So if someone engages in, say, rape or torture, the worst that we can say about them is that they are violating social taboos that we adhere to because they are expedient or beneficial. But we can't say that they are doing something that is really, in any objective sense, evil. And that's really the point of the moral argument, that once you grant naturalism, you have to give up belief in moral and uh, sorry, objective moral facts. So this person is effectively saying, yeah, okay, I, I accept that. The second thing I would say, however, is that it's not obvious that these claims about morality are actually true. Take something that most of us take to be morally good. Pure benevolence. Doing something purely because it benefits another person, even though it does nothing for us, and may even disadvantage us. Many of us, probably most of us, find this to be morally good. Yet it bestows no evolutionary advantage at all. It's not reciprocal. It's purely benevolent. In fact, it bestows an evolutionary disadvantage. Moreover, I don't see any... I just don't see any reason at all why anyone would believe that a reciprocal choice not to kill other people bestows any evolutionary advantage either. In fact, killing off the weaker of the species in some sort of Nietzschean final solution makes much more sense if we want our species as a collective to have a better breeding pool. You know, being nice to the weaker in the species seems kind of dumb. Now that I think about it, I'd add something else. Natural selection favors individuals. If an individual acts in such a way that it produces offspring, then that's selection for. It's selection for somebody, or for a certain trait. If an individual acts in such a way that it that prevents it from producing offspring, then that's natural selection working against an individual. But natural selection does not select societies. Societies don't act, and they never have offspring. Natural selection only works on the individuals that make up that society, and for the individuals concerned, pure benevolence confers no evolutionary advantage. So that's basically how I would reply to this argument. Firstly, it's not a rebuttal of the moral argument. It's a concession to it. Secondly, I'm not convinced that it's true. So I hope that's helpful. It's also hopefully an illustration of the way the letters thing can work. You can raise objections. I can see how I might deal with them. Or you can, I don't know, make suggestions or... Anything you like. All right, listeners, on another note, before I sign off for episode 13, for anyone who's interested, 
I've uploaded my review of the debate that took place last year between Alistair McGrath and Christopher Hitchens on the topic, Religion, the Poison or the Cure. The zealous estimates of the angry atheists of the Internet notwithstanding, I think it's safe to say that Hitchens' argument were less than impressive in spite of his swagger and flamboyance. You can be the judge of how well I've assessed him. Uh, it's in the articles section under th Articles on Theology and Biblical Studies, etc. at the website beretta-online.com. As always, any comments on this episode, any suggestions for future episodes, or any comments in general are welcome. Email me, podcast at beretta-online.com. Until next time, this is Glenn Peoples signing off again. Right now, I'm not 100% sure of what the next episode will be about. You'll just have to wait and see. But for now, take care, and here ends another episode of... Say hello to my little friend!